while his son is being tortured, while he's being shamed. And if you were one of the executioners mocking Jesus and deriding him, you wouldn't have seen really anything unnatural about what's going on. Sure, you would have seen it strange that someone who was declared innocent was then pronounced guilty, that someone who was innocent didn't speak to defend himself but remained silent throughout this whole process. We haven't heard Jesus say a word since he spoke to Pilate. But nothing unnatural has happened. Jesus, just like any other man, would, has suffered. But that's about to change. And I do have one correction to make because Joe pointed out to me last week. Jesus' crucifixion began not at noon, but at 9 a.m. He's been on the cross for three hours. And it's noon when the sixth hour arrives, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. You know, there's a sense in which no matter what the suffering is, and this includes our suffering as well, that God's always there. That God is always there in the midst of our suffering. And that was true for Jesus too. We see that if you pair up and look at Psalm 22 and see the sufferings of Christ written a thousand years before Jesus ever suffered and about probably 600 years before the mechanism of crucifixion was, began. That you know that God's in control. That everything's happening according to his plan. And even the intentional acts of evil men, God is intending for good. But that applies to every event. That applies to every moment. That applies to setting up the chairs the way we did. What was different about this moment? Well, there are key moments in history in which God makes himself visible, which he appears on the stage and shows the significance of the moment. And that's what's happening here at the climax of history. 
Jesus has said about the Old Testament that all of it spoke about him. That the Bible spoke to all the things that he must suffer and die. That the whole Old Testament points to this moment. And how we see that is really where God is. And I have an outline for you, but I thought of three A words. And whichever I can, whenever I can have alliteration, I like to use it. And we see when God arrives on the scene. And we see when God, oh, let's see if I can remember my A words. He arrives on the scene. He acts on the scene. And he is acknowledged by only one. God arrives, he acts, and then he is acknowledged by only one. One, but I'll still follow the outline. The first time we see the father arrive on this scene is in the darkness. The reason why I emphasize the fact that this was noon is because noon to 3 p.m., that's when the sun is at its highest. That's when it's the hottest part of the day. And yet a darkness covers the land. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all record this phenomenon. This is supernatural. This is something that they would have understood too at the time because everyone's there for what? For Passover. What happened just before Passover? There was this ninth plague that came upon the land of Egypt in which the whole Egyptian people, anywhere where Egyptians dwelled, the land was dark for three days. Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23 tell us. And it was a sign that whether you were a believer or a pagan, you got the picture. It's the same thing that we can sometimes sense when it's dark in the middle of the day. Whether it's because there's a tornado watch, storms are coming in, and you get caught in the frightfulness of it. And maybe if I read the Left Behind, one of the Left Behind books, so it gave me kind of a distorted end times view. So when I woke up and no one was in my house, and it was green sky, gray, dark outside, sometimes I was like, did Jesus come? There was a certain sense in which, whether they were pagan or not, we know that God is present in this such an unnatural event. And I think this point is good to say that this is not a storm that's coming in to dampen the sky. This is a darkness that's falling over the land. How is God present? Well, Jesus had just quoted just two chapters ago depicting what the end times would look like. He quotes Isaiah chapter 13, 9 through 11, and he says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant 
and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. How is God present here? Darkness, and the same reason why you feel scared at certain times when the sky turns black, is because it's God's judgment. There's a sense of a fear that comes over us because we see, we see the holiness of God. And when he comes to sinners, it's coming in judgment. It's coming specifically in wrath, as Isaiah 13 tells us. And even more clearly, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, On that day, speaking of judgment day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. What's the Father's presence here? The Father's presence is one of wrath and anger. And we call this Good Friday. Who, why, why, is John, why is God showing up on this scene? Why is it the world dark for three hours? And by the way, I, I don't think this was a universal darkness over the whole land, over the whole earth. Because first, the parallel of Exodus is just over the land of Egypt. Where they felt a palpable darkness. Where God's wrath was directed, not at the whole world at that time, but directed specifically at the Egyptians. And also, I think another maybe outside perspective is that fact that no one else records this darkness all over the world where the sun went out for three hours. Or maybe even on this side of the world. This is a darkness that's hovering over this particular locale. Where specifically, we can get even more you know, precise here. It's hovering over a particular person. If I describe to you, or even here, mothers and fathers, someone comes and mocks your child, beats them, brutalizes them, shames them, does the unthinkable to them, are you not, as a parent, going to show up and defend them? To rectify the situation, see that they suffer the consequences of their actions? Isn't that what any good, loving parent would do? Could God be showing up to show the darkness over the land of Israel, to show his judgment on the wicked acts of these people, and putting his son on the cross? Could it be the arrogance and pomp that he's subduing in this moment? That might be our intuition. But that's not the connection Mark makes. As soon as it becomes light, as soon as the sun starts shining again at 3 p.m., what happens? Jesus cries out with a loud voice, a mega voice. He has two mega voices in this passage. And he says in Aramaic, Mark is so concerned to bring out not just what he said, but also the translation of it. And he says in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God arrives on the scene to do the absolute unthinkable. 
he comes in wrath on his son. That's where the wrath is pointed. The wrath is not pointed to all the sinners who are doing all the, the unthinkable things, the brutal floggings, the mockery of the only Savior that they have. But God's wrath is felt by the Son. And here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might have forgotten from last week, but he's quoting the very first verse of Psalm 22, verse 1. For one reason, to the reader, to us, we get to see the fact that he's quoting the whole psalm. He's quoting the first line. And it's the song that then you know the rest of the tune. I just thought of this on the spot. So it's kind of like if I say, Benamina. There's a tune that's stuck in a bunch of your heads. The rest of the song that I didn't say. I filled in the gaps. And hopefully that wasn't too distracting. That was just the first thing that came to my mind. But he said the first line of the song. As we saw, the psalm is filled with his forsakenness. His pain, his trial, but he ends with hope. He ends with focus on the fact that God is the Redeemer who will bring forth out of his trial salvation to many, to the whole world. That's not something, though, that would have been captured in the moment. That's something for us to see Jesus' where the joy lies. When Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, for the joy thou set before him, he despised the shame. But let's not just skim over that he despised the shame. He quotes that very first verse for a specific reason, not just to have us all fill in the gaps, but to show us that he was truly forsaken, that he was that person that David wrote about, he was writing about someone more than himself. You see, in our suffering, when we ask where is God, when he doesn't answer our prayers, when he lets loved ones die, when he gives us pain that seems to never go away, and for some people it never does, our perception is a misunderstanding for we are never forsaken completely if we are in christ we can read things like romans chapter 8 that tell us if if god is for us who can be against us romans 8 38 and 39 say for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If he did not spare his own son, how could we be forsaken? That's the logic. Romans 8, 33. This is the line I left out. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. He's not talking about toys here. He's not talking about all things God will graciously give us no pain, no suffering. The end of Romans makes it clear. He will give us all things. Nothing on earth will be able to separate us from the love of God. When we go through suffering, our apprehension of the God forsakenness, which we can resonate with David at times, we can feel that God forsakenness when we pray and we receive the answer of no over and over and over again. But the reality is, is that we have this momentary glimpse in this life. We don't see that all of our pain is going to come to an end. That we have the reward of eternal life. And no matter the pain, nothing will separate us from God's love. And he promises to love us in and through the suffering. And use it all mind-bogglingly, mind-bogging, you know what I'm saying. (laughs) For our good and for his glory. But the only reason why is because while we misunderstand our and just feel God forsaken, Jesus actually was forsaken of God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Everything about this picture communicates that Jesus is forsaken of God. That's what the Father has arrived to do. But it's forsaken for a purpose. Jesus, right when the lights go on, we see that Jesus is first mocked, and we'll get back to that, but Jesus utters a loud cry and then breathes his last. He was on the cross for six hours, agonizingly. But he was not killed by the brutality done towards him. And there's this shift in scene, right? Right in verse 37. Jesus uttered this loud cry, breathed his last, and then all of a sudden, the scene shifts. No one would have seen this. If you were standing at the cross, you wouldn't have noticed this happened. It's something strange, isn't it? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We saw this word torn come up one other time in Mark's gospel. And it came back way in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. When the Father tore open the heavens in two and spoke to to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved Son. We know here the Father is the one who shows up. The Father is the one who does this act, tearing the temple veil in two, and I kind of gave it away there. What's the curtain that he's referring to? He's referring to the veil of the temple. And there's two veils. At this point, why don't we all turn to Hebrews chapter 9 to see this? Because Paul preaches a sermon later on in his life. And he refers to this specific moment. And we're not going to go through the whole chapter. 
But in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, what I, who I believe to be Paul, or just the author of Hebrews, said, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the final section, in which the, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden, the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a, gold, a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And here I'm going to reiterate, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But here's the point. The preparations having been thus made, verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. And what was he indicating to them? Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And the ESV has, which is symbolic for the present age, and I think it's better translated, and it, the ESV actually says so, sort of, in a footnote, for the age that this is symbolic for the age then present. What's the point here? Why am I even getting into this? Well, Mark uses that the temple curtain was torn too, but it could refer to either one of these. It could refer to the first curtain that guarded everyone from going into a holy place where God's presence was aptly felt. Or it could be the second curtain into the most holy place where God's footstool was, where not even the priest entered, but once a year and only the high priest. And he had to come with blood lest he die in the presence of a holy God. Due to him for his sins personally and also for the sins of the people he came to represent. Mark doesn't indicate which curtain it is. Probably for the same point that the book of Hebrews is trying to make. That what is being indicated to us by these curtains, by these holy places is that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as it stands. At the death of Jesus, by the death of Jesus, what did God's wrath accomplish? It accomplished the end of such a division. The temple, after this point, has lost all of its significance... It no longer has a place in Christianity. No longer has a place in the people of God. Why? Because God has made access no longer through the temple, but through his son. Flip to the next chapter, chapter 10. I'm not going to read as large of a section. Just verse 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since... We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The Father acts in this moment, coming with wrath, not for the sinful world, but a day of judgment for his Son. To open up a way to himself. This is what the temple always pictured. That there's one true God. There's one way to him through one route at his footstool. But sinners are separated from God and have no hope. All the sacrifices that they performed were temporary in picturing what Jesus would do. We know that they were not effective because they had to repeat them every day. They had to repeat them once a year. There was no hope in the blood of bulls and goats. Always the people of God looked forward to a Redeemer who by His blood would grant us access to the Father. What the Father is doing here is opening up for not just the Jews but for the entire world. Reconciliation, access to himself. You know, I fear sometimes. It's interesting how God uses suffering in different people's lives. In some people, it causes them to go deeper into God. To dive the depths of the resources that we have by this open access. Because they realize that no matter what they're feeling, that our God-forsakenness is just a feeling. It's not the reality. Our feelings are real. Jesus was forsaken by God and felt the brunt of it, and so does every Christian who goes through suffering. But that's not the end of the story. And for us, we have the blessedness of it not being real, just perceived. But suffering for other people causes them to run away from God. To ask that question, where is God in the midst of this? How could he let me go through suffering? What good could he have in killing my father at a young age? What good could he have for taking away my mother before I knew her? What age, and that's, these aren't all true of me. What possible reason could he have for taking my child before me? What possible reason could God have for any of the suffering for children who walk away from the faith? For chronic illness and disease? For barrenness? What possible good? Where is God in all these things? It's at these moments when we, suffer, when we recognize the reality. We realize that the curtain has been torn. We have access. And Satan's going to try whatever he can do to make us not aware of that access, or to run in the opposite direction. What we need to do in the suffering is feel the pain, be honest with the hurt, but then dive into the access that we have. That's an objective reality. The curtain is, doesn't have to be torn over and over again throughout history. It only had to be torn once. Verse 25 says, Nor... Was it, this is chapter 9, verse 25 that, of Hebrews. 
that nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since before the foundation of the world. But as it is, verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Whatever God-forsakenness that we are feeling, or whatever pain and trial that we're going through, the reality is, Jesus has already died for our sins. God's wrath in Christ is no longer upon us. The only thing that God is using our suffering for in this life is for his discipline, for our good, and for his glory. And for us, if we know we have that open access and this resources, when we plumb into the depth and see for God for who he is and what he's done for us, we'll see that bare minimum knowledge is enough. We see God had a reason in Jesus' suffering and in his providence. And you know what? In God's providence, that's true for all of our suffering. We're just not given a behind-the-curtains view of it all. The Father arrives in the darkness. He acts through the tearing of the temple curtain. So now you have that fill-in-the-blank still. The Father acts. And ironically, he's only acknowledged by one person. He's only acknowledged by one. For when Jesus said that he was God forsaken, isn't it interesting if you were there, you've been mocking Jesus, and then the sky goes out for three hours? Pitch black. The sun stops giving its light. And then to come out, and when the light comes on, and you see Jesus in front of you to resume the mocking. Some say that when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, saying, my God, my God, in Aramaic, that the words there are pretty similar to the Aramaic words for Elias. I don't think that's the case. How did Jesus declare Psalm 22, verse 1? With a mega voice, a loud cry. The cry, that, that same word is used of John the Baptist. When he was crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. I think sometimes we think that they might have sound similar and people might have been mistaken. But you know what? In English, I hear some Chinese words that also sound kind of the same to me. Native speakers can usually distinguish the difference between different words, especially when it's so clearly and loudly articulated. What they're doing is continuing their mocking, as if the lights had never went out. I have to be able to flip, I have to be in Mark to be able to see that, not just in the book of Hebrews. Some of the bystanders say, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And they fill a sponge of sour wine. This is just basically cheap stuff. The same sour wine that's also used in Psalm 69, verse 21, to say that they quenched my thirst with sour wine. 
every moment in Jesus's crucifixion has some attachment to prophecy being fulfilled, by the way, showing God's in control. But I don't want to digress too much. And they say, wait to see whether Elijah will come and take him down. See, they knew the prophecy. They knew that Jesus was truly the Messiah. There was a forerunner who was going to come. Elijah. The problem is, is they missed the Elijah who was to come. What they saw when they saw Jesus being crucified was much like what Muslims see. The Quran, which is written 600 years after uh, the New Testament, in the early, most likely the late 700s, Surah 4, ver, you know, I th- don't think it's verses, but verses 157 through 58, talk about the fact that God does not let any of his prophets suffer such disgrace and such shame, and that being kind of an impossibility from an Islamic perspective. And they talk about, well, what must have happened in this moment was that Jesus, while he was on the cross, before he was crucified, was swapped with someone else, with Judas Iscariot. And he was the one who was suffering, and God clothed him with the body of Jesus and made it look like Jesus was the one being crucified. But God would never forsake a prophet. God would never abandon his own, someone so righteous, someone so innocent. And the people standing there before him, it was the same thing. They had the same sort of perspective on the whole situation. If Jesus was really the Messiah, he couldn't possibly be suffering on a cross. He couldn't be possibly naked in front of us, bearing the shame of this event. Whatever God's judgment is in this situation... It could not be both directed at Jesus and an attestation to who Jesus was. It was an impossibility in their mind. You know, it's not just an impossibility for the minds of Muslims. I've heard people talk about the Christ, uh, Christ, the cross, as divine cosmic child abuse. Have you ever heard of that? Talking about the child abuse, that what we have here is the picture of the father coming against his son and punishing him, brutalizing him for the sins of other people who aren't his children. Well, that last part, you can get the drift. The reality that they're missing is the nature of who God is. We just read... That Jesus, when he was coming into the holy place to make a sacrifice, he brought, he brought himself, his own blood. Jesus was not this abused victim of circumstance, the circumstance being an abusive father. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan to save us, to save his people. To save his church, the father made a plan with the son to send his son to die for his people's sins and the Holy Spirit accomplished it all. The Trinity is at work here. What we're seeing is not just the wrath of the father upon sin. We're seeing how seriously Jesus himself takes the sins of his people. 
we're seeing how seriously the Holy Spirit takes it. That this was necessary. When we read Romans chapter 8, that he did not forsake his son. Don't separate all the persons out of the Trinity and not act like they're not one God. This is one God with one plan to accomplish one purpose, which is the salvation of his people. And only one person recognizes it. God acts, or God arrives, God acts, and he's only acknowledged by one. And he's acknowledged by the centurion. The son is finally acknowledged, is your blank. He's acknowledged by the centurion who says, he saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion. Centurion is a Roman official soldier who is in command of about 200 men. This is the man who's the head of the execution squad. This is the man who came over, would have picked up Jesus from Pilate, mocked him as king, would have seen all the events, led him to the cross, set him up, watched people crucify him, watched the darkness. It's this man that then confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark started off, Mark chapter 1, started off, this, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter was the first and only human character in the gospel of Mark to confess that Jesus is the Christ. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, and this centurion is the first person, human being, to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, we oftentimes let our feelings get in the way. It's not just in our sufferings. Sometimes we even let our feelings get in the way of who we witness to. Don't let how you feel about others dictate who you limit the free offer of the gospel to. See, God's plan from the very beginning was to come to save sinners. And not just sinners of the Jews. Jesus is king of all people, of every nation and every tribe. He came to save the worst of sinners. Jesus came to save his own executioner. Isn't that amazing? The difference between those Jews who were mocking him and continued to mock him and thought it was an impossibility and the centurion is not how nice they were. Not how hard their hearts were even. I mean, how hard-hearted would you be if you brutalized and murdered people by execution watching weeks and weeks and weeks worth of crucifixions? This would be a hard-hearted man. The difference is God. God opened the eyes of this Gentile, this man from among the nations, to see Jesus for who he was in the way that he died. 
you know, crucifixions are engineered to be agonizing deaths that last weeks. Not weeks, about a week. Not hours. Jesus is on the cross for six hours total, which would have been horrendous. But he wasn't up there for the usual length of time. Jesus died not as a consequences of the wounds that he received. He died too quickly for that. He died with too much strength for that, uttering a large, a loud rather, articulate cry at his forsakenness and now in his last hour. A mega voice is what he had. You know, it would actually be impossible for Jesus to die as a result of his wounds. Not because he wasn't human. He had blood that he was losing. But just like the crowd said, Jesus could have healed himself at any time. It would not have been really a great effort for Jesus to heal his own body while he was still on the cross. It was impossible for Jesus to die. The reason why he died was because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And that's the penalty that we all have looming over us. We know that we sin. We deserve to die. We needed a substitute who was innocent. Who was our Passover lamb to save us in the darkness. Whose blood was shed and put over our lives so that we could enter the holy place and be reconciled to the living God and have forgiveness and life. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see God here? Do you see God's purposes? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is and what he offers to those who turn to him? About this, uh, O. Palmer Robertson, I just finished a book about the life of Jesus. And he said this, Mark undoubtedly implies that Jesus is the first man who grants to men the freedom from guilt which is true and valid in the judgment of God. He is the first and only man among men with whom there is full and eternally valid forgiveness. He does not grant a mere soothing sense of, of our guilt or a mere hope of release at the end of our life. He does not forgive us in the sense of just a moralistic, be a good person and God will forget the rest of it and sweep it all under the rug. God does not offer a forgiveness except through Christ. And on Christ is laid every sin, past, present, and future, of all those who would ever believe in him. Even the sins which we count most trivial. He forgives as one who has eternally brought the eternal condemnation that's due to sinners and brought them on his son. The same Jesus who in Mark chapter 9, 42 through 48, 
affirmed the reality of hell and the eternalness of it. The same Jesus who in Mark chapter 10 verse 27 said that forgiveness is a divine miracle. That we need to be saved by such a divine miracle since it is salvation is an impossibility for us in and of ourselves. Is the same Jesus who works the miracle. We have no reason to think we're forsaken if Jesus was condemned. It doesn't mean you shouldn't weep. You should weep when hard things happen. But don't weep without hope. Weep knowing the Father has shown his love for you. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, we pray and we ask that you would work in our hearts to be able to see the glory of God, God the Father in sending his Son, God the Son in willingly dying for his people, and the Holy Spirit applying Jesus' work to our hearts even today. The Holy Spirit is drawing us into the holy place where we know we have forgiveness, where we know our Father hears us, and we know he will never forsake us. Lord, we pray for those who are in this room that you would give them all eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may you help us to not reflect their blindness, those who the blind in this passage, those who are too dumb to see the obvious, that God is real, that God acts, and that God, if he is to be appropriated to us in salvation, must be acknowledged. And Lord, may you help us see that Jesus invites us. Lord, we pray that everyone in this room and those who are listening to this sermon, whenever it is, that they too would be among the many for whom Jesus came into this world to give up his life as a ransom to deliver us from the guilt of our sin and our enslavement to Satan. Lord, we are so grateful for this gift. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me.